This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Helping Those in Need. In the first half, John K. Carmack shares his address, Bless the Poor and Needy. Then in the second half, Fred E. Woods speaks on the soul of Kalupapa. My first memory of staring poverty in the face came about 1936, during the Great Economic Depression. About that same time, Maynard Dixon painted this poignant picture depicting the forgotten man. With the holes in his shoes, his downcast eyes, his hands hanging down, without work or hope, sitting on the curb, men and women walking by, well-dressed, paying no more attention to him than to the fire hydrant next to him. The faces of the passers-by are deliberately not shown, representing, I think, their lack of humanity and compassion. Hopefully, this captures your full attention and introduces my remarks in a memorable way. I would have been about five years old when a man dressed in tattered clothing, hungry and cold, came to our door in Winslow, Arizona, asking, Could you spare some food or money? I'm on the road, cold and hungry. The concern and empathy I felt then never left me. During those years, poverty was widespread, as, as I remember, Mother always had something to spare for the poor. We, in our home, had few luxuries and guarded our meager resources closely. We always had a comfortable home, however, and good food on the table. Mother canned fruit, vegetables, and meat. She made all of our bread and many of our shirts. I never remember eating at a restaurant. We did not consider ourselves poor. Nearly everyone around us was in similar circumstances. We enjoyed a good life. In reality, measured by the standards through which most of the world's history has gone, we, we were rich. We had clean running water, indoor plumbing, space to live in, clothing that in most ages would be robes only the rich could afford. Today, many of us enjoy unprecedented abundance. We see it here, nearly everywhere. We can easily forget that a major percentage of the world's people live in poverty, seriously lacking necessities. What should we do about this gap between those with plenty and those living in poverty? Do we have an individual responsibility to alleviate poverty? Does the Church, now a worldwide institution, have a responsibility to help? Is caring for the poor merely a good thing or an imperative duty? These are the issues I will address. One of the phrases we often hear in prayers is, Bless the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted, and those who have cause to mourn. I hope we always pray for the poor. But isn't there more to this than dashing off that phrase? And why should I even bring this subject up with university students? Although material abundance may come for many of you, those days are probably in the future. Nevertheless, this is a good time to be thinking about these things. And I have sensed a great spirit of compassion here. I felt it when I spoke at the hunger banquet on campus 11 months ago. I'm aware that some of you struggle daily. The overall impression, however, is one of ampleness. And if we compare our comfortable circumstances with such places as Bangladesh, Haiti, and Bolivia, we know we're blessed. Conditions of poverty are widespread. In the years ahead, I sense that you would like to do something about that great gulf separating individuals and communities. I believe you will. And I hope to touch your hearts, increase your understanding, and engage your interest about this subject. The gulf between the affluent and needy worries me. The scriptures on this issue cut to the core. 
Both our opportunities and duties arise out of these teachings. How we act in relation to them is of the utmost importance, even tied closely to our individual salvation. Let's start with the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Poverty was even more evident in those days. The apostles often ran into it among their Gentile converts. In his second epistle to the saints at Corinth, Paul urged those with abundance to share with those in poverty around them. He reminded the saints how gracious the Lord had been to them. They enjoyed every benefit of the gospel. To use Paul's own words, they abounded, quote, in faith and utterance and knowledge. And now, in the spirit of love, Paul urged them to take practical steps to care for the poor. To dramatize their duty to the poor, he used the greatest moral act in history as an example they should follow. These were his words. Quote, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, referring to his high and holy premortal station, yet for your sakes he became poor, meaning that he came down from that high station to earth, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So the atonement was the crowning act of love. He had rescued them from spiritual and physical death. And by using the words rich and poor to describe Christ's great gift, he helped them understand their loving duty to help the poor. In this way, he explained, they could prove their sincerity. He continued, quote, Now at this time, your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. Simply put, others now, he was telling them, need your help, and you may at another time need their help. Helping each other leads to equality. These words triggered another thought. As Paul said, both the abundant giver and the needy recipient had their needs supplied in the process of giving. Those with abundance, on the one hand, gave food clothing, shelter, and money to those in need. On the other hand, those in poverty shared what they had, their love, their appreciation, humility, their simplicity. And this process of sharing each with the other promoted greater justice and equality. And the process brought them closer to the spirit of the great plan of reconciliation. We can have the same blessings today. Sharing blesses both the giver and the receiver, and both feel good when it happens. The Lord is also pleased, so everyone wins. The desire to help others comes not just as a duty, but also through our love of others, and it extends to those we don't even know. Joseph Smith's grand understanding of love's reach and power is captured in this tremendous statement. He said, a man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, but ranges through the whole world, anxious to bless the whole human race. We find an interesting declaration of these principles in the Doctrine and Covenants. There the Lord said, I, the Lord, stretched out the heavens and built the earth, my very handiwork, and all things therein are mine. Yes, we may enjoy temporary possession of many good things, but we are merely stewards of those things because all things belong to our Lord. He then explains that the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. The Lord intends to provide for his saints, but in his own way. And the Lord's way is, quote, that the poor shall be exalted, that is, lifted up and their wants supplied, in that the rich are made low, that is, those with abundance share with those in poverty. As the Lord concluded these very clear teachings, he declared something designed to capture our complete attention and underline the critical importance of caring for the poor. 
said, If any man shall take of the abundance which I have made, and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. That indeed is plain language. The Lord warned and motivated us to take care of his children. Unless we choose to brush this warning off, we find the same warning repeated often in the scriptures. For example, Jesus gave the same teaching and warning in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The unnamed rich man in the parable is described as clothed in purple and fine linen. He also enjoyed sumptuous food every day. Lazarus, on the other hand, lay at the rich man's gate, hungry and covered with sores, hoping somehow to pick up crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. On Judgment Day, Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. When the rich man died, he was consigned to hell, where he burned in torment. The tables had turned. The rich man was now the needy one. What had he done to deserve such a judgment? Obviously, it was not what he did, it was what he did not do for Lazarus that at least in part doomed him. Perhaps he rationalized. This beggar brought his condition on himself. He's lazy. Anyone can work if he wants to. He may have told himself, I gave it the office. I've helped build a temple with my contributions. I was honest in business. But when the Lord repeats the same warning in direct statements and powerful parables, we're wise if we pay attention. It's obvious that we must help those needy souls that cross our paths if we have the ability to do so. My experience is that most church members with abundance would like to find a way to share with those in poverty, but are looking for the best ways to do it. They have discovered that giving in the wrong way often causes more problems than it solves. Our giving can be wasted, even when given with the best of intentions. And handouts often weaken more than they strengthen. Also, so much that we do provides only temporary help and fails to solve problems on a basic level. We want to help in the worst way, and often do. Is there anything we can do that will have a lasting effect in helping the poor and needy? This is where we turn to the issue of the responsibility owed to the poor and needy by the Church as an institution. I remember when Ethiopia experienced a terrible drought in 1984. Thousands died daily and there was no end in sight. The Brethren designated a special Sunday to fast and make contributions for the relief of the people of Ethiopia. The saints, like those in Corinth, raised money, millions of dollars, to be used to alleviate suffering. Part of the money was used to develop an irrigation system to store and distribute water in times of good rainfall. This was more than just a Band-Aid approach to alleviating poverty. The possibilities for basic long-range benefits made that help particularly valuable. The, the Brethren assigned me to investigate the value of the project by traveling to Ethiopia when the irrigation project was well along. I was thrilled then with our involvement. Individuals couldn't easily provide such help. The Church, as an institution, needed to organize and promote the effort. Let me share some keys that helped me understand this subject. The first key to understanding our duty in relation to abundance and poverty is that we should not set our hearts on riches. Why? Because, quote, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Remember the rich man who came to Jesus in the night seeking to know what he must do to enjoy eternal life? He lived a good life. But that was not enough to ensure that he would reach his goal. Probably sensing his pride and selfishness, Jesus told him, Sell that thou hast and give to the poor. 
Jesus perceived that the rich man had his heart set on the wrong things. If he really wanted eternal life, he had to repent of his pride and love of riches. Likewise, we can be in danger if our major focus is on amassing more and more wealth. Jacob summarized this first key in these words. Quote, Before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them. And ye will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, and to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. So, follow Jacob's counsel and you will be on the right path. Keep your priorities straight. This will not deprive you of financial success, if that is important to you. But your heart will be anchored on the rock of Christ. The second key is to keep your eyes open for opportunities to do what you can do to alleviate situations of suffering that come your way. We have already sufficiently reminded you of this simple but vitally important key in such teachings as the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The third key applies to those fortunate enough to enjoy material abundance. We should voluntarily share some of it with institutions and programs that help those in need. I have mentioned as an example the help the Church gave to alleviate suffering in Ethiopia. Since then, a tremendous outpouring of contributions have come to the Church for such causes, enabling the Church to help with needs and crises all over the world. Of course, we should not forget our responsibilities with donating to the Fast Offering Fund, a tremendously vital and successful way for the Church to care for its poor globally. Now, something very profound and exciting happened on March 31, 2001. The Church established the Perpetual Education Fund to help bring a whole generation of young adults out of poverty. PEF is not just another humanitarian project, but is uniquely postured to meet deeper and more fundamental needs of young adults mired in poverty. When he introduced the PEF, President Hinckley counseled us succinctly and directly on our duties to help those in poverty. He said, quoting, I believe the Lord does not wish to see his people condemned to live in poverty. I believe he would have the faithful enjoy the good things of the earth. He then invited those with enough and to spare to share with the fund in these words. It is our solemn obligation, it is our certain responsibility to succor the weak, to lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. He added, giving the manner in which we can best help, we must help them to become self-reliant and successful. Church members seemed to instantly sense that the prophet had acted under the inspiration of God. He had provided church members with a simple but marvelous way to bring our people out of poverty and want, to gain financial stability, and to become successful citizens in their own lands. In showing the way, he dodged the giveaway approach by establishing a loan program rather than offering grants. He explained his firm expectation that members receiving loans would repay them to help others that came after them. In explaining the purposes of the loans, President Hinckley boldly declared, quote, Education is the key to opportunity. All of you know that. We might do many good things, but to educate a generation of young adults in their own countries is the key to real opportunity. When he announced the creation of the PEF, President Hinckley cited the former PEF, the Perpetual Immigrating Fund and Company, as a precedent. Historians have written extensively of its beneficial effect, enabling Church members from Europe to join the body of the Church, trying to make a go of it in these valleys. When the PEF was announced, many Church members experienced a sacred feeling that it was right and inspired. Some had the reaction, why didn't we think of it this before? 
Helping young people get education leading to good employment is one of the finest ways conceived thus far to liberate a generation of young adults in less advantaged areas of the world. So many good things can and will follow from such a program. The Church is interested in perfecting the whole person. A recent convert to the Church in Peru faced severe parental disapproval when she was baptized. Later, when she received a PEF loan and started a wonderful educational program, her parents experienced a complete change of heart. Her father said, Your new church is not only concerned about the spiritual welfare of its members, but also their temporal welfare. That brings us to the fourth key. It's obvious, but needs to be said. It is that we don't intend for those with family responsibilities to forget them in following the other three keys. Perhaps all we need to do is to remind ourselves of the advice Paul gave Timothy, quoting, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The Lord wants us to have a reasonable share of the good things of the earth and become self-sufficient, never forgetting the source of all good things. In summary, I submit that those four keys will guide us in meeting the issues we all face in helping the needy. We want all of you to become the best you are capable of becoming. We hope you will strive to incorporate these four keys in your lives. The PEF is already bearing fruit. Here on the screen you are seeing 300 young people from Peru that are benefiting from this initiative. Look at their faces. They are our brothers and sisters. Perhaps one example will illustrate the power of PEF to lift our young people from conditions of poverty. This young man, South America, came home from his mission with a great desire to make a mark in the Church and in his community. He knew he needed an education, and since he lived close to an excellent technical school, desired to enroll there. He visited the school and learned that the cost to attend was far beyond his means. Perhaps next year the cost will be reduced, he thought. For eight years he visited and asked for the opportunity of attending there to no avail. Then came the announcement of the PEF. He applied for a loan, enabling him to attend the school. He graduated first in his class as an occupational safety engineer. When he graduated, the school was about to build a new campus for 10,000 students. They hired him as their safety engineer at three to four times any income he had previously enjoyed. In turn, he reduced their accidents 80 percent. His ability to serve in the church increased. His wife and children now have sufficient for their needs. Look at him. Notice the big smile on his face. This is an example that could be replicated hundreds of times. May we individually and as a church, as a church family, bless the poor and the needy. We have shared the keys as we see them. May we all act well our parts in these matters. Imagine what 30,000 of you spanning across the world, living these principles can mean to the Church and to the world. I envision this happening under the inspired direction of our leaders and under the inspiration of the Spirit. Perhaps this is the way Enoch and his people eradicated poverty completely from their great city. And in doing these things, we bridge the gulf between those enjoying material abundance and those mired in poverty. Perhaps recalling the words of the opening hymn is a way to sum it up. Because I have been given much, I too must give. Because of thy great bounty, Lord, each day I live I shall divide my gifts from thee with every brother that I see who has the need of help from me. Because I have been blessed by thy great love, dear Lord, I'll share thy love again according to thy word. 
I shall give love to those in need. I'll show that love by word and deed. Thus shall my thanks be thanks indeed. Now let's return to Dixon's forgotten man. By all means, let's continue to pray for the poor and needy, the sick and those who mourn. But let's all, every one of us, do more than pray. Let's do what we can according to our circumstances to lift those arms that hang down. Let's act in a way that will bless the poor and needy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is helping those in need. We've just heard from John K. Carmack. After the break, we'll return with Fred E. Woods for The Soul of Kalupapa. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is helping those in need. Next is Fred E. Woods, BYU professor in the Department of Church History and Doctrine and the Richard J. Evans Professor of Religious Understanding at the time of this address, titled The Soul of Kalupapa. Brothers and sisters, aloha. Before we get started, I thought I needed to explain this red tie because when I got up this morning, my 16-year-old son, Freddie, said, Hey, Dad, why are you wearing that tie to the devotional? He's an avid BYU Cougar fan. I pointed out that on the very bottom we have BYU Hawaii. So aloha to you. I express gratitude to the BYU administration for this opportunity to address you this morning. My remarks are dedicated to my mother, who taught me that every human being is a child of God and that he loves all his children and we should love them as well, regardless of race or religion. Although my parents are not LDS, they have been a great support to me throughout my life. In December of 2003, I went to Hawaii to do research and invited my wife Joanna to go with me because I knew we would have a few days at the end of my work week to also celebrate our 24th wedding anniversary. My research focused on the LDS history of Laie on the island of Oahu. But I asked Joanna where she would like to go on the Hawaiian Islands for her anniversary celebration. She replied that her priority would be to visit the Kalapapa leprosy settlement on the north shore of the island of Molokai. We had been reading about this unique place, and I thought her suggestion was perfect. Our trip included a precarious mule ride down the steep 2,000-foot cliffs of the Molokai Range, which eventually spilled out into a four-mile peninsula of sacred space, a transforming terra firma known as Kalapapa. The literal translation of Kalapapa may be rendered flat plain or flat leaf. In either case, it is surely a leveling experience for all who cross the boundaries of their own professed beliefs and ethnicity into a larger realm of brotherhood and compassion. For it is here that religious denominations and cultural divides dissolve, where the love of God and mankind manifest themselves in a magnificent way. This smooth, beautiful peninsula seems most appropriate to symbolize the universal love of a supreme being who encompasses all four corners of the earth. Structures erected in this region for more than a century include places of worship for Protestants, Catholics, and Latter-day Saints, as well as a small Buddhist temple. It is a place that not only includes a variety of Christian strains, but also extends beyond this realm, embracing an array of other views. In a world made up of thousands of religious verities, the unconditional love and spirit of acceptance that exist on Kalapapa truly stand as an example to all of us. After passing through some of the most beautiful landscape our eyes had ever beheld, we met LDS Church member Kule Bell at the Kalapapa Post Office. At that time, Kule was employed as the Kalapapa Postal Clerk. We had a wonderful visit, and it was then that I determined to write a history of the Latter-day Saints in this region. Nearly five years have come and gone since that time, 
and I am still researching and writing that history. However, after my first visit, I decided that a larger story of Kalapapa must also be told—the story of the valiant patients and volunteers who worked together and inspired each other despite their differing faiths. Joanna and I went away from our first encounter with this small settlement feeling much the way that Elder Matthew Cowley felt when he encountered Kalapapa in the mid-20th century. Quote, I went there apprehended that I would be depressed. I left knowing that I had been exalted. I had expected that my heart, which is not too strong, would be torn with sympathy, but I went away feeling that it had been healed. He added, I went appreciating my friends, loving my enemies, worshiping God, and with a heart purged of all pettiness. This is a transformation for me, and for it I am indebted to the saints of Kalapapa. As 1865 dawned, the Hawaiian government's concern over the disease had escalated to the point that King Kamehameha V signed a document intent on preventing the spread of this malicious malady. The writ designated a self-contained region surrounded by natural borders for victims on the eastern portion of the Kalapapa Peninsula, a place called Kalawao. The following year, the first patients began arriving. Millions of people worldwide are still infected with this disease, which affects primarily the skin and nerves. However, less than 5% of our human population is susceptible to its devastation. In 1873, a Norwegian physician named Dr. Gerhard Hansen discovered the cause of this sickness, a bacillus, lepre, and as a result, the illness began to be referred to as Hansen's disease. In 1981, this name was officially adopted in Hawaii as the medical term for leprosy, which usage patients prefer, since the former term possesses a negative stigma in biblical literature which intimates that its victims were unclean. Between 1866 and 1969, over 8,000 people were forcibly removed to the Kalapapa Peninsula. By 1969, drugs were developed which arrested the disease, and patients were again free to move abroad as they wished. In 1980, Kalapapa was named a national park. Today, about two dozen patients still live in the settlement or in Honolulu at the Halemohalo Hospital, and with their passing, the park will eventually extend its influence throughout the entire region. In the same year that Dr. Hansen made his medical discovery, Two ecclesiastical leaders from different faiths first made their appearance on the Kalapapa Peninsula. One was a Latter-day Saint named Jonathan Hawaii Napella, the other a Belgian priest, Father Damien Joseph de Wuster, who will be canonized by the Roman Catholic Church in the coming year. Napella was born on the island of Maui in 1813, became a district judge in 1848, and converted to Mormonism in 1852. He was a tremendous aid to early LDS missionary work on the Hawaiian Islands as he fed and housed the elders, helped them learn his native language, and aided Elder George Q. Cannon with the translation of the Book of Mormon. Though Cannon taught Napella the restored gospel, Jonathan Nepel on several occasions taught Canon and the Utah elders a greater dimension of faith. Perhaps his greatest contribution to humankind is his example as a loving husband. When his wife Kitty contracted the disease, Jonathan chose to remain with her in the settlement and act as her kokua, a Hawaiian word meaning helper. Consequently, Jonathan wrote a letter in his native language, Hawaiian, to the Board of Health pleading that he might be allowed to stay with his wife. He wrote, On August 3, 1843, I took my wife as my legally married wife, and on that same day I vowed before God to care for my wife in health and sickness and until death do us part. I am sixty years old and I do not have much longer to live. During the brief time remaining, I want to be with my wife. My wife has also lived a long life, but with this disease it will quickly shorten her life. Such is the reason for this petition. Luckily, Jonathan's request was granted, and he spent the remaining years of his life at Kalapapa with Kitty. While here, Napella encountered yet another way to serve those around him. Not long after his arrival, he was called to act as the leader of the LDS Church on the Kalapapa Peninsula a calling he held from 1873 until his death in 1879, 
from the effects of Hansen's disease. Perhaps not coincidentally, Father Damien arrived at Kalapapa in the same year the Nepellas did. This Belgian priest would eventually gain international fame because of his demonstration of faith and attitude of selfless service on the island best captured by his own words. Suppose the disease does get my body. God will give me another one on Resurrection Day. From the day of his arrival in 1873 until his death at age 49, his concern for all the patients, regardless of race or religion. However, the core of his heart seemed to belong to the orphan children whom he often loved in singing. His Christian service on the Kalapapa Peninsula serves as an important reminder of Elder Orphan F. Whitney's words offered in a 1921 General Conference address. God has been using not merely His covenant people, but other peoples of the world as well, to carry out a work that is too demanding for the limited numbers of Latter-day Saints to accomplish by themselves. Other good and great men and women have been inspired of God under many circumstances to deliver dimensions of light and truth. Soon after their arrival at the settlement, Jonathan Nepel and Father Damien became acquainted. Both had come to Kalapapa to serve, and both contracted Hansen's disease as a result of their charity. Damien was 27 years younger than Napella, and the cultural background of each was very different. Yet both were firmly committed to their religious orientations. Though ecclesiastical leaders of different faiths, they became dear friends. In fact, one of their contemporaries who lived at Kalapapa wrote, After Father Damien arrived in the leper settlement, Mr. J. Napella and Father Damien were the best of friends. What makes this relationship particularly unusual is the fact that at this time heated rivalries existed between faiths as they vied for island converts. Yet at Kalapapa there seems to have developed a different kind of spiritual terrain. Nourished by the relationship between these two great men and their commitment to improve the decadent moral conditions encountered upon their arrival at the settlement. Reporting to the Board of Health on the depraved situation of the patients, Damien wrote, They numbered 816. Some of them were old acquaintances of mine from Hawaii, where I was previously stationed. To the majority, I was a stranger. They were all living at Kalawau. They passed their times with playing cards, hula drinking, alcohol. Their clothes in general were far from being clean and decent. The miserable condition of the settlement at that time gave it the name of a living graveyard. Damien further noted, Many an unfortunate woman had to become a prostitute to obtain friends who would take care of her and children when well and strong were used as servants. Such conditions created a need for these men to unite hands with those patients who desired to improve their spiritual environment. Through the influence of Damien, Napella, and a number of other Avon Christians, Reformation soon made headway. Over the years, Kalapapha softened under the strain of the suffering that transpired there. One former patient named Bernard noted that Kalapapa used to be viewed as a devil's island, a gateway to hell, worse than a prison. Yet he added, Today it is a gateway to heaven. There is a spirituality to the place, all the suffering of those blood. Who has touched the land, the effect is so powerful even the rain cannot wash it away. Another patient and friend named Makia Malo noted, They thought it was hell, and we thought it was heaven. In interviews, some patients have related how their spirituality has been affected by their Kalapapa experience, especially as it pertains to prayer. For example, one patient named Nancy Tolino stated, We were nurtured not just by a Protestant or a Mormon or even Catholic nuns. Everyone worked together. Everyone needed prayers. There were prayers. And I was thankful that I was very close, very close to God. Someone asked, Do you ask God why? I said, No, I don't. I just say, Maybe it's a wake-up call. I thank Him. I want people to know, to really know the love in the hearts of the people of Kalapapa. We've got hearts. We've got hearts. Another patient who came to Kalapapa at age 14 in 1936 also shared her experience of prayer and the importance of expressing gratitude to God, even in times of adversity. She said, 
God knows best for us. You must keep your faith no matter what comes into your life. You must still be able to thank the Lord for the many other blessings that we receive and keep this faith all the time, no matter what comes into our life. Because I feel religion is not thanking God when everything is good. Religion is thanking God when everything isn't going right. This vertical relationship with the heavens seems to have also affected the horizontal relationships among the patients themselves. Furthermore, several people who have had contact with the Kalapapa patients have spoken of the unifying effects which appear to be inherent in the suffering of this disease. For example, in his book Travels to Hawaii, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote of his visit to Kalapapa explaining, They were strangers to each other, collected by common calamity. Protestant writer Ethel Damon noted, Surely the isolation of suffering has tended towards obliterating the barriers in religious observance. Reverend James Drew further observed, They are brothers and sisters here. Leprosy has made sure of that. One Asian patient named Paul Harada echoed the same theme. The more we suffer, the more strength we have. The more suffering, the closer we are together. Life is that way. If you haven't suffered, then you don't know what joy is. The others may know something about joy, but those who have gone through hell and high water, I think they feel the joy deeper. And referring to the Kalapapa community, the same patient told me, We are all friends. There is an ecumenical philosophy here. In a number of interviews conducted over the past several years, I have certainly seen and heard indications of the ecumenical attitude at Kalapapa. For example, Latter-day Saint patient Kule Bell related at times she was recruited to sing in the Catholic choir. Not only is Kule sung with the Catholic choir, but she and her friend and fellow patient Lucy Keono, also a Latter-day Saint, have made other trips to Father Damien's church in Kalawao at St. Filomeno, three miles from Kalapapa, to enjoy the chapel's acoustics and especially to sing to Father Damien as a tribute to his charitable service. Another example of ecumenism was relayed in a humorous way by Richard Marks, a former patient, a Catholic, and the sheriff of Kalapapa for nearly two decades with a record of no arrests. In describing the Catholic Mass in Kalapapa at Christmas time, Marks explained, The Protestants and Mormons came early and they took the back seats, so we had to sit up front. Another Catholic patient, affectionately known by his friends as Boogie, noted, We know all about the things we went through. I think that's one reason we feel like a family. When we had a function going on, the whole community just comes together. Apparently, this kind of attitude prevailed throughout the 20th century. Latter-day Saint convert Mary Singh recalled, When I came to Kalapapa in 1917, everybody was just living like a family. Nobody says anything bad about the other religion. Everybody was together. See, they respected, you know, each church. Mary added, If the Catholics had a party, they waited for the Mormon people to get through with their service, and so it is with the Protestant. Everybody was happy. One patient, Edwin Lillipolly, known affectionately as Polly, and a very active member of the Protestant community, recalled, Quote, us in the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church were always getting together. When it was something big, we always joined together and enjoy it. End of quote. One memorable ecumenical service occurred soon after the Lions Club erected a cross at the crater on Kalapapa, shortly before the Easter celebration of 1948. One author wrote of the assemblage of different Christian faiths. The two Mormon elders assisted Pastor Alice in the service. Many Roman Catholics were present. The people sang as never before their joyous message, carrying on the wind, even to the sufferers in the hospital at Kalapapa. Perhaps the most impressive piece of Kalapapa's interfaith collaborative work is the construction of various places of worship. For example, Polly expressed his joy and gratitude when members of the settlement joined in 1966 to help restore the Protestant Siloama Chapel. Polly said, We had the Protestants, we had the Catholics, we had the Mormons all chip in to build this church. They wanted to help this church. When he came here, you could just feel the spirit of love. It was special working with them. It was just beautiful. I can never thank them enough. It was wonderful. 
When asked if the same was true when a 20th century Catholic church was erected, he added that everyone joined in to help us raise some funds for the church. Everybody would help out, and that's how it was in Kalapapa. That's what's so different about Kalapapa, Polly said. When somebody needs help, everybody's there. Finally, this patient explained, This is our family. I don't care what religion. That's how we felt. When they are in need of help, we're there. You see? We always go. We don't have to be asked. That's how we were brought up here in Kalapapa. Somehow that great love for everybody just brought us together. The same spirit of love and collaboration that existed during the construction of the Catholic and Protestant churches was also evident in 1965 when a new Latter-day Saint chapel was built to replace the older 1904 chapel, which had deteriorated. When the building was dedicated at the close of the year and the worked hours tallied, it was discovered that those of other faiths had actually donated more hours in its construction than the Latter-day Saints had. All worked hard, and some of those with disabilities had their hands wired to the wheelbarrows that they might do their share. The entire settlement joined in celebration over the knowledge that their LDS friends had a new chapel to worship in. In early 2005, I learned that both BYU-Hawaii and Chaminade, a Catholic university in Honolulu, were celebrating their Jubilee anniversaries. I approached the presidents of both schools at BYU-Hawaii, President Shumway and Chaminade President Sue Wesselkamper, about the idea of a joint celebration on each campus and explained that it seemed natural to share this wonderful interface story, which seemed to have commenced with the friendship between Damien and Appella. They listened attentively and agreed to it. One important factor which no doubt aided in the acceptance of the proposal was when I met with President Sue and another Chaminade administrator who asked if we could begin our meeting by reading some of the comforting words which had been recently spoken by President Hinckley at the April 2005 General Conference regarding the passage of Pope John Paul II. On this occasion, President Hinckley said, and I read to them, I extend to our Catholic neighbors and friends our heartfelt sympathy at this time of great sorrow. Pope John Paul II has worked tirelessly to advance the cause of Christianity, to lift the burdens of the poor, and to speak fearlessly in behalf of moral values and human dignity. He will be greatly missed, particularly by the very many who have looked to him for leadership. I believe these inspired words helped strengthen a friendship with Chaminade and open the way for the proposal which came to fruition during the fall of 2005. During this period, I presented the Kalapapa story of interfaith collaboration to students and faculty on both campuses as part of the Jubilee celebrations. In addition, over the past three years as an Evans Professor of Religious Understanding, I have had the opportunity to share this edifying story at several conferences and with numerous students attending many universities. This story has also encouraged a brotherhood with leaders of different faiths. However, the most tender part of my experience has been getting to know the Kalapapa community and to feel the spirit of the patients who are now my friends. A 60-minute documentary directed by Ethan Vincent titled The Soul of Kalapapa will be released next year to tell their story and will be shown at the World Parliament of Religions to be held in Melbourne, Australia in December 2009. I now like to just show a short trailer of this documentary before I conclude. thought that somewhere between eight and 9,000 people were sent to the settlement and are laid to rest there. And so it is overwhelming at times to see the amount of death that surrounds you even today in the number of cemeteries uh, and headstones that are there. And then to contrast that with the incredible beauty of the place, it's one of those paradoxes that it's very difficult to um, come to terms with. There used to be a priest that would come to serve part-time from England when the regular priest was on vacation. Uh, he told me that the two holiest places in the world, as far as he was concerned, was Jerusalem and Kalapapa. You know, for many of them, when they came here, this, they saw this place as a prison. You know, it's basically surrounded by water on three sides and, and a cliff 2,000 feet high on the other side. But now in their old age, a lot of them... Many of them, I would say, see this place more as a place of refuge, away from the rest of the world. 
and they're very happy and content here now. I think people should know about Kalapak. I think people should know about the patients and how they live. And I think people should know about administration and National Park. I think they should know. Because Kalapapa is ours, I always say that. It's the people. The people makes Kalapapa. And it has the patients they want to make Kalapapa. Everybody was united in a family of suffering, but everybody was united in a family of overcoming. Uh, Faulkner talks about, you know, man must not survive, man must prevail, man must overcome, man must succeed over his environment and over those things that hold him back. It is a very peaceful place. The mana, the essence of this place is positive, it's not negative. So we come here and we feel rejuvenated. We the charity and uncommon service rendered at Kalapapa serves as a reminder of the importance of erecting bridges instead of barriers, finding common ground instead of battleground, and in valuing one another regardless of ethnicity and religiosity. To me, it provides a vivid illustration for the need of Latter-day Saints to not only join hands, but to look outside the circle of our faith community and to take Elder M. Russell's charge seriously, to love one another, be kind to one another despite our deepest differences. Such an ecumenical philosophy of inclusiveness seems to be desperately needed in a world that suffers from societal diseases such as selfishness, pride, bigotry, and prejudice. In addition, it is hoped that the short treatise on the Kalapapa settlement will serve as a reminder of the acute need for each of us to generate light instead of heat and to apply the maxim of St. Augustine in the essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. I testify that I know that God lives and He loves all of His children. I testify that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Helping Those in Need, with thoughts from John K. Carmack and Fred E. Woods. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.